One Week Season. is going on one week season fam jm to win here welcome to the week eight edition of the ows angles podcast i am your host i am your guest i am jm to win throw this baby on 1.5 x speed and let's get started before we dive into this week's slate a couple quick updates Last week, we launched OWS Missions. A lot of you took part in the first mission. Those of you who missed last week's podcast, a very quick rundown. We are going to be running seven missions from now through the end of week 13, or from week seven through the end of week 13. Most of these missions are super beneficial for you guys. All of these missions also help OWS, which as we've talked about, is kind of important right now because we're at this point where... We don't want to sell OWS, but we're kind of a couple years away from bridging the gap between all of the money that we've put into the site and the point where we'll actually be able to reap the, the, reap the rewards. And we kind of need a couple things to break our way in order to make it to that point, that 2024 point. And so, again, I know that a lot of you, OWS is your home base during the season, and you probably don't want to see it being run by somebody else. So... With that in mind, we launched missions to kind of come up with these ways that benefit you guys, benefit us. And in addition to that, we have a, a drawing, a set of drawings that we're going to be doing in week 15 for a bunch of cool stuff. One-on-one -on -one coaching sessions with me, one-on-one -on -one coaching sessions with Hilo, with Zandamir, with Mike, free inner circle for life, uh, all access pass to marketplace, free OWS annual for a year, uh, some other cool stuff. So last week's mission, you can find the missions in the missions tab in the menu on the homepage. Last week's mission was to sign up for Underdog. And if you missed the Week 7 Angles podcast, I strongly encourage you to go back and listen to the first 15 or 20 minutes because we walk through optimal strategy for the Battle Royale tournament on Underdog, which is a tournament that everybody except OWS members basically is playing incorrectly. So it's super plus EV to play that contest. Best ball, as you probably know, or Underdog, as you probably know, is they do best ball stuff all off season, but they also do drafts throughout the season. And so this is a draft style tournament and there are really cool strategy angles and basically how to outmaneuver the field and put yourself in super plus EV position there. In addition to the plus EV play, Underdog has a 100% match deposit match bonus. It was $10 last week. So deposit $10, get $10 from them directly. So you basically get to play with 20 bucks. They actually bumped up that bonus over the weekend and it is now up to $100. So I know most of you are probably dropping 10, 15, 20 bucks on Underdog. But those of you who want to drop more on there and have not signed up for Underdog yet, you can deposit 50 bucks. 75 bucks, 100 bucks, and literally just play with double that amount of money. Underdog will put that money right in your account. You obviously can't just withdraw that money, but you can play with that extra amount of money in these plus EV contests. So super cool. Uh, same promo code, OWS, gets you 100% match on up to $100. In addition to that, Signing up for Underdog with promo code OWS gets you three entries into the mission's drawings in week 15. Now, this week's mission, mission number two. If you are in Inner Circle, you have five entries to the OWS mission's drawing. If you are not in Inner Circle... One of the things that we've been talking about for probably the last three or four weeks on, on the back end of the site is basically we feel like anybody who gets a chance to experience Inner Circle will understand how valuable it is. I'll say it like that. And so 
we wanted to launch a mid-season discount of Inner Circle. And so what we're doing is Inner Circle, the way we ran Inner Circle during the off-season and heading into the season was if you already had an OWS annual membership. So Inner Circle includes everything in OWS annual. So if you already had an annual membership, you signed up for Inner Circle and then canceled your annual membership. And so your new Inner Circle price was your new price to get everything, Inner Circle included. What we are going to do for this mid-season discount is we are going to just put a $39 rest of season Inner Circle price tag out there. 39 bucks. So on top of your OWS annual subscription, you drop by, spend 39 bucks, and you get Inner Circle for the rest of the season, which is pretty awesome. Even better, we are making Inner Circle free for like the next seven days, basically. So that means this Saturday's strategy podcast with Xandamir and Hilo on Saturday. This Saturday's on Saturday. Uh, this Saturday's Xandamir and Hilo strategy podcast will be free to all OWS annual members. This week's Oracle in the scroll will be free to all OWS annual members. And week nine's Tuesday Reflection Podcast with me will also be free to all OWS annual members. So you can find, start out with the Saturday Strategy Podcast, you can find it in Discord on the live stage channel at 6 p.m. Eastern on Saturday. Xandamir and Hilo go position by position. They don't talk picks. They talk strategy. And it's an incredible podcast. Uh, Roto Maven keeps telling me that people would pay for the entire OWS annual plus Inner Circle subscription just for that podcast. I mean, it's literally everything that you need from a strategy perspective for the slate. It's incredible stuff. It's my favorite listen every week. That can be found on Discord in the public stage channel at 6 p.m. Eastern on Saturday. It will also be archived on the public One Week Season podcast feed shortly after it ends. So if you subscribe to the One Week Season podcast feed, which you probably do, you will find it there. If you do not subscribe to the One Week Season podcast feed, just search One Week Season on your favorite podcast player and you will find that podcast on Saturday night. You will find the Oracle in the scroll this week. And next Tuesday, you will be able to find my, we call it reflection, but we basically kind of look backward, look forward, talk DFS strategy, DFS ins and outs, uh, and basically a lot of DFS training during that session. You'll be able to find that on Tuesday live at 7 p.m. Eastern or archived on the One Week Season podcast feed shortly after it ends. Finally, you can find that $39 rest of season inner circle discounted price on the missions page. I think that covers everything. Go to the missions page on the site. If you have any questions, they should be answered there. If you have any further questions, email us at support at oneweekseason.com. And definitely be sure to check out Xandamir and Hilo's podcast on Saturday. Check out the Oracle in the scroll. With that, let's get to week eight. The first thing I actually want to say before we dive into week eight is I don't know if you guys are taking full advantage of the matchups tab in the NFL Edge, but if you are not, it's incredible. The work that Alex and Dustin and Alex are doing is unbelievable in the matchups tab. There were several times this week where I was wanting to look up. We have a, a number of division matchups this week, so Saints and Bucks for example, or Bills and Dolphins, for example. And I was wanting to see some historical numbers from those matchups. And I was about to go start looking them up myself and then realized, oh, they're probably already laid out in the matchups tab. Clicked over to the matchups tab. Everything's right there. It's super incredible how they pull in all of this information from so many different places and basically answer all of the questions that you might have about different players, different setups in the game, different spots in the game. So make sure that you're not only taking advantage of the NFL Edge game write-ups, but also the matchups tab. What I typically do is I read the matchups tab, then I read the NFL Edge game write-up. And I think a lot of people kind of handle things that way. So I was thinking about that, thinking about that this week. And there are a lot of times where we launch something on the site 
everybody gets really into it. And then like a year later, people kind of start forgetting about it. So I want to remind you about the value of that matchup tab. Make sure you're taking advantage of that. With that, the week eight slate. This is a very interesting slate. Part of the reason I say this is a very interesting slate. Now, this is Friday morning when I'm recording this. So ownership projections haven't really shaken out yet. Things could change. In a few places, things could change pretty dramatically. And in most places, things will change a little bit. But things won't change so much that what I'm about to say becomes obsolete. I was looking at industry ownership projections this morning on OWS, on a bunch of other sites. And as of right now, from what I'm seeing, it looks like I might legitimately not be rostering any of the 10 highest owned wide receivers, any of the five highest owned quarterbacks, and only one of the 10 highest owned running backs. So that's a pretty unique setup. A 12-game slate is a a decent-sized slate, but it's pretty rare that we can run into a situation like that. And so for me, the way that I like to look at that, and and actually I'll first say this, one of the, actually one of the things that I love about the way we've expanded the site is we have different voices on the site now. And I think that that's really valuable and important because one of the things that used to, A, bother me a little bit and B, trip me up a little bit was the fact that you guys were paying real American dollars for an OWS subscription and my voice was the only voice you were hearing, which then kind of, it it creates a situation where what I say could be taken more as fact instead of here's how I'm seeing things, here's how I'm approaching things. And we've talked for years about the importance of, even when I was at Roto Grinders, it was all about, everything I did was all about not handing you fish, but teaching you how to fish. So a lot of it is instructional and training. And that's why there's so many players who, because I I don't consider myself, I consider myself uh, a very good DFS player. I don't consider myself the best DFS player. And that's accurate that I don't consider myself the best DFS player. And part of that is because there are a lot of things I know. And then when it comes time to put together rosters, I kind of get tripped up or make little mistakes that slightly sharper players don't make those same mistakes as me. But this is why there are so many people in the industry who have said that they learned DFS from me is because so much of what I've done is focused on the training aspect. But with launching my own site and being the only voice on that site, it becomes easy for subscribers to feel like, okay, well, this is the right way to see this game. This is the right way to approach this game. This is the right way to approach this slate. Whereas the optimal way for me to share things with you is basically to be able to say, here's how DFS is played. Here's how I'm applying that this week to maximize my chances of a first place finish. That doesn't mean I'm going to be right about individual games or spots on this particular week. And so with me being the only voice on the site, there was a a stronger pull for me to make sure that I was leaning toward kind of the mainstream plays a little bit more. And I think we saw that the most in 2018, the first year of the site, and kind of moved past that by 2019 to a large extent. But even with the blue chips and the light blue chips, this is kind of the first year that I have left pretty popular and clearly strong players off my player grid. And part of the reason I've finally felt comfortable doing that is because we also have Hilo laying out the end around and breaking down all the strategy angles and how he's putting things together. We have Larejo writing willing to lose and repeatedly coming up with plays that by the numbers are not the quote sharpest plays and yet have tons of upside and are frequently hitting. We have the Oracle where everybody's answering all these questions and sharing all these thoughts on different aspects of the slate. We have the Saturday podcast where Xandamir and Hilo are walking through the strategy on the slate. And so it allows for all these different voices and different ways to approach that individual slate. And I love that. And it kind of gives me a little bit more freedom to play the way that I'm best at playing, which is how do I see the slate? How do I want to attack it? And also 
share that with you guys without feeling like without feeling like I am going to lead 40 to 50% of subscribers into plays that are sometimes kind of thin plays, right? They're super plus EV plays. In other words, a play that is 1% owned, but would hit for a big game seven or 8% of the time, you're going to make a lot of money playing those types of plays over time. But that type of play is also going to miss 90 out of a hundred times. And so there can be this sense if I'm, if I'm the only voice and I'm putting out plays like that of, oh, well now I'm tripping people up because so many people are following me on these plays. And so with the new voices added to the site and the way we've set things up with the scroll, I, I tweeted this a few weeks ago, but a buddy of mine said that the scroll feels like a fireside chat. Like nobody's saying here are the plays to play, but everybody's kind of discussing the slate and the strategy on the slate and the way that they're approaching the strategy on the slate. And so that allows me to kind of do that same type of thing, which is what my original articles were back in 2014, 2015 is like, here's how I'm seeing the slate. Here's how I'm attacking it. Here's the strategy around it. And here are some other kind of strategy points and thoughts and ideas that you can take and run with. Actually, that leads me to another thing. Mike Johnson and I were having uh, a text conversation last night, and we were talking about the importance of being coachable, the importance of being willing to learn new things. And he was talking about Mike, Mike, does, Mike coaches high school basketball and then also does some one-on-one -on -one, uh, coaching stuff. And he talked about, you know, sometimes he'll have a uh, player he's coaching and they will refuse to take his advice and change the things that he's working with them to change. And then they get to varsity and wonder why they're not playing. And it's because they're not good enough to play because they're, they're literally doing things that make them incapable of being an excellent basketball player. And it's the same thing with DFS, right? The willingness to learn and to grow as a player is so important. And I was telling Mike when I started playing in 2014, I, I hammered STL cards in his PMs on Roto Grinders with questions about DFS. I hammered like five or six other players that I never got responses from. And I reached out to them multiple times and then realized later, once I started writing for Roto Grinders, like, oh, nobody really checks their PMs on here. But uh, I was asking these different guys different questions. And when I, when Draft Street got bought by DraftKings and I'd already had, I'd already earned seats to two live finals on draft street. I'd already had lots of big wins on draft street. Draft street got purchased by DraftKings. I hadn't really played on DraftKings yet. First thing I did reach out to all these guys. Hey, what are the strategy differences that you see between draft street and DraftKings? What are some of the things I should be thinking about on DraftKings? And I've talked about this in the past. But my growing up, my personality, my tendency was to be one of those kids who's like, yeah, I know, I know. I know. And if somebody would tell me something I didn't know, my response would be, I know. And my parents would always hammer into me, especially playing sports, the importance of being coachable. And it took a long time for me to grasp that. But once I did, it sort of became a lifestyle, recognizing that there's always going to be, no matter how much you know, there are always going to be things that other people know that you don't know. And in DFS, you will never become a consistently profitable DFS player if you're not willing to ask questions and learn from other consistently profitable DFS players. I think I've used this example before, but last year when, so I, you guys know that I'm basically a bubble player. And so I'd heard several people mention to me how sharp Blender was, Blender HD on Roto-Grinders. And Cubs fan had talked about it. And uh, then we'd kind of been discussing it in the contributors chat on discord. And then somebody was like, well, he's a subscriber and he's in discord every once in a while. And so I kind of started talking to blender a little bit. And he said to me at the time, he was like, Oh, you and Bales are the two people I learned DFS from. And then from having conversations with him and listening to his podcasts and talking to him about different things, I learned an extraordinary amount about DFS that I didn't know or that I wasn't thinking about, or that sharpened my play in different areas. And there's such value in being willing to have that mindset to say, maybe I know a lot in this area or this area or this area, but also there are things that other people know that I don't know. There are things that other people are strong in that I'm not strong in. And being willing to learn 
from those people and ask questions and be open. So as you continue to play DFS, make sure, and I know that most of you, you're on OWS, that's kind of your mindset, but it can be so easy to click into that. I know, I know mindset, or that's not the, that's not what works for me, or that's not how I see things or whatever it might be. And instead start opening up your mind and saying, what can I learn? If, if my results over a large sample size are not what I want them to be, what can I learn that can make me better? What can I learn that can bring me closer to where I want to be as a DFS player? So all of that's kind of a, an unplanned tangent off of the fact that I have, I have none of the popular plays this week. So this doesn't mean that I'm right, but I don't care about that. What I care about is that I came to these plays organically. I came to these plays sort of in a bubble and in coming to these plays, I know that they're sharp plays. Now, I know that they're sharp plays insofar as they're going to miss plenty of times. That's why they're not 10 highest owned plays. They're going to miss plenty of times, but they're also going to hit way more often than the field is giving them credit for. So when I run into a week like that, when I run into a week, those were always my favorite weeks when when I was at Roto Grinders and wasn't connected to anybody else in the industry. And even the first year or two of writing the NFL Edge, I would have no idea what anyone else was saying. And I would write the NFL Edge, write my article, and then come onto the Friday podcast with Levitan and Hefe and frequently be surprised about certain players that Levitan would ask about that were going to be chalky and frequently say, oh, I haven't even thought about that player this week. And for me, that's the best way to play, right? It doesn't mean that that player is a bad play. It just means that that's not one of the plays I'm going to. I also talked about this on the uh, DFS recap pod with Scott Barrett on Tuesday. And this is something that uh, one of the things that Mike and I were texting about last night, but that people get too focused on fading players. Okay, I'm going to fade this guy or can you fade this guy or whatever the case might be. This is actually kind of becoming one of my favorite angle spots of the, of the season, um, even though we haven't gotten to the bottom up build yet. We will get to it, I promise. The fade, the idea of like, oh, I, I can I fade this guy? Everybody's going to be on this guy. Can I fade him? Shift your mindset away from who you're not playing to who you are playing. I think I said this in the angles email this week, or maybe I said it somewhere this week after that podcast, but take away defense you only have eight spots on a roster. There are going to be a ton of players you're not playing. If you find a build that you feel gives you a great shot or a clear shot, I should say, at 200 plus points, doesn't mean it's going to happen every time, but a, a, a build where you can say, hey, if one or two things break this way, I get four roster spots right at a high level. And then I've got these pieces in here that make a lot of sense to kind of fill things out okay, I can get to 200 plus points with this. And then you see that it's a roster, a roster construction that other people aren't on. That's the best way to make money in DFS. It doesn't matter that there's some popular player who could also go for a big game that's not on your roster there, right? Who cares? That's not, that's not how Cubs fan thinks. Cubs fan builds rosters around game environments and upside plays, right? It's not about who am I not playing. It's about who am I playing that can get me a huge score. And if you think that way, you are almost inevitably going to be on different plays or different roster construction types than the field. Now, another thing that I said earlier in this week is that everybody's mind, I think actually was on the uh, inner circle segment this week, is that you know, everybody's mind works differently. So when I try to play like Hilo, I play poorly. Hilo is very much, you know, Hilo's taking game theory courses at Harvard, at Yale. Hilo is under, he has a deep understanding of that's how he sees the slate. I'll say it like that, right? He has all this NFL knowledge, but the way he sees the slate is okay. Everybody else is doing this. And if I do this, I now have this much clearer path. You know, here's the, the main avenue that everybody's on. And okay, like a few months ago, I was stuck in traffic and there was this little street to the side that went through a neighborhood. There was like construction. And then, and so it was like this, you know, two lane road with cars backed up. And then there was this little street to the side that went through a neighborhood, but just 
parallel to that main road that everybody was sitting in traffic in. And I was like, well, let's try this. Right. And I went over there and saved 10 minutes by just driving 35 miles an hour through this neighborhood road that was just parallel to the main road that everybody was sitting there on. Right. And that's kind of what Hilo sees when he sees a slave. It's like, okay, everybody's clumped up here. Maybe this little neighborhood road actually doesn't reconnect and I lose time this week, but more often than not, I'm going to, I'm going to save more time over time. Right. And I'm going to make more money over time by going to this path that nobody's on. And that's how he sees the slate. The way that Bales sees the slate, I've talked about this in the past, is different from the way I see a slate. And so when I read Bales stuff and learned a ton, but then tried to directly apply it to my play, it messed up my play. I went like a month and a half in MLB without cashing in a single tournament while playing like more entries than I typically played because I just didn't, it wasn't the way that I see a slate. So take all of this with a grain of salt and wrap it into what makes the most sense to you. But to me, building organically, building in a bubble, looking at all the games, thinking through game environments, coming up with my plays, my rosters, and then coming out of that bubble to see what everybody else is talking about is often my most profitable way to play. And it gets me onto these plays that are better than the field thinks they are. And therefore, they're lower owned than they should be. And therefore, they're going to be more profitable over time. So with that, let's dive into this week's bottom-up build. And I actually have two bottom-up builds this week. Both of them are listed in the player grid. And the first one, I'll, I'll say first one, I was kind of building both of these at the same time. And I'm kind of starting to think that I might only build two rosters this week, one of which would be built around one of these cores, the other of which would be built around the other of these cores. So the first one I'll talk about has Teddy Bridgewater at quarterback. So it's an interesting spot. It's one of the lowest total games on the slate. Nobody's going to be looking at it because everybody kind of looks at the same signals as one another in building their rosters and identifying who the good plays are. And guys like Raybon and Levitan, guys who I really like and respect a ton, have done amazing research over the years on what is what are the most profitable data points to look to. So home favorite running backs or games with high totals or all these different things, right, that are indicators of a game that will be a good game environment uh, or a spot that will be a good spot over time. So you take all the home favorite running backs and compare them to all the non-home favorite running backs. Home favorite running backs are going to be more profitable. The more I think in that vein, however, the less money I end up make it. What's always been best for me, you know, in, in before I ever, before I wrote the NFL Edge, actually up until 2018 in the NFL Edge. So I wrote the NFL Edge starting in 2015. I didn't start looking at Vegas lines for the NFL Edge until 2018 when we launched OWS. And that was again, because I was kind of providing all the information. So it was important for me to kind of do that top down type of approach. Up until then, I would frequently show up on the Friday night podcast with Levitan and Hefe and, and, not know what the over-unders were in various games because I have a pretty clear sense already. I did this exercise last year in week one, if some of you remember this, where I came up with my own Vegas lines for each game. Uh, I may actually start doing that again. I just haven't had the time to do that, but came up with my own Vegas lines for each game. And, you know, it, when I do that, it's going to be 14 out of 16 games. I'm going to be kind of two to three points off of what Vegas has, but there will be these couple games where I'm just seeing things differently. And... Or games where maybe it's a game like Washington and the Broncos, where the over-under is like 43, and, and it's a reasonable over-under. It's a good over-under, but it could go for 55-plus points, and most people won't be looking at it that way. So this week, I did kind of all of my initial thoughts and and thinking through the slate and building my initial player pool, doing some early research without looking at Vegas lines. And this spot stood out to me a little bit. And then it kind of slid below the other spot that we'll talk about, the other bottom-up build that we'll talk about, which is a Carson Wentz-led roster, uh, because these two are kind of in the same price range. And then uh, I got to the NFL Edge write-up, which Poppy wrote up that one. And 
he kind of echoed some of the things that I talked about and then laid out some new thoughts that I hadn't thought about. And, and then I kind of started digging in a little deeper and it was like, man, this is actually a really interesting spot. I mean, Teddy Bridgewater is, I think it's four games this year that he's gone for 20 or more DraftKings points. He costs only 5,400. Washington has been, you know, a bottom three pass defense this season. And while they haven't been nails against the run, they've been solid against the run. What's interesting about this spot is we probably need Washington to do well through the air in order for this game environment as a whole to take off. Otherwise, you end up with kind of one of these, you know, 24 to 21 games and Bridgewater puts up a nice score, but doesn't kind of blow the slate away. However, Bridgewater's solid games, and I laid this out in the NFL Edge, have all come in games where the Broncos have scored, I think it's 20 to 24 points. So he doesn't need the Broncos to score four touchdowns in order to put up 20 to 25 DraftKings points. He can get there with the Broncos scoring three or even two touchdowns, which means that for me, a Bridgewater skinny stack, in other words, Bridgewater plus Cortland Sutton or Bridgewater plus Jerry Judy, lock that into this bottom up build, uh, is viable. It's very interesting without any pieces from Washington. With that said, we know that Taylor Heineke has gunslinger tendencies. We know that Antonio Gibson is dealing with this shin issue and they are limiting his workload. We know that the Washington football team has an aggressive head coach in Ron Rivera, and we know that it's likely that they are going to be willing to attack if they need to attack in this game. Did you know that the Broncos' pass defense ranks 24th in DVOA this season at the moment? The Broncos' pass defense has been a kind of talking point among beat writers and fans, but because the Broncos aren't a team that most of us are paying attention to in fantasy or DFS, it's not something that most people on our end have really noticed. They have played the Giants, who don't have a great passing attack, the Jags, who don't have a great passing attack, the Jets, who are miserable, the Ravens, who don't really throw to wide receivers, the Steelers, who just have this short area passing attack, the Raiders, who don't really throw the ball to wide receivers, and the Browns, who don't really throw the ball at all. So the Broncos' numbers allowed to wide receivers, you know, they don't really stand out as, as far as like their overall on-the-season numbers to wide receivers. But let's take a look at what they've allowed to some individual players. This is in the player grid as well, if you want to look at it and see it visually. Sterling Shepard, week one, on only nine targets. Sterling Shepard, seven catches, 113 yards, and a touchdown. Next player we'll look at. This is week four against the Ravens. Uh, Marquise Hollywood Brown, only five targets, four catches, 91 yards, and a touchdown. So we now have 14 targets that have led to 11 catches for over 200 yards and two touchdowns. Chase Claypool, week five, only six targets, five catches, 130 yards, and a touchdown. Week six, Raiders, Henry Ruggs, only four targets, three catches, 97 yards, and a touchdown. So I'll go through those stat lines again. Shepard, 7-113-1. Hollywood, 4-91-1. Claypool, 5-131. Ruggs, 3-97-1. Now, we know that Shepard just works in the short areas of the field. It took him nine targets to get up over 100 yards. But Hollywood, Claypool, Ruggs all have downfield roles, all have speed, Five, six, and four targets. All of these guys went for over 90 yards. All of these guys scored a touchdown. What's cool about Terry McLaurin is he not only has speed to match Hollywood and Claypool and Ruggs, but he also has better route running chops than Sterling Shepard. Sterling Shepard, who is a good route runner, like short area, tight spaces route runner. Terry McLaurin is a phenomenal short area, tight spaces, route runner. So he can kind of take on, he kind of does take on the shepherd role in the short areas of the field, you know, five, six, seven targets there. And then the Hollywood Claypool rugs role with the four to five to six downfield targets. So in this spot, 
with a player nobody will be thinking of. And, I, and I'm kind of still kicking myself for talking about McLaurin last week against the Packers and then not playing him. Uh, but in a spot where nobody's going to be talking about him, we know that he has a broad range of outcomes. We know that if he misses, he can go for seven or eight points. But it's worth noting that this is actually a good matchup. This is a spot where he should see his standard 10, 11, 12 targets. There's really no reason why he shouldn't. And we see that this Broncos defense, pass defense, has been attackable this year, especially to players who profile similarly to Terry McLaurin or players who profile as like 80% of Terry McLaurin in one aspect of his game, right? Like Terry McLaurin's a better downfield threat than Hollywood or Claypool or Ruggs. He's a better short area, tight spaces route runner than Sterling Shepard. Put it all together, right? Like this is a, a really solid spot for Terry McLaurin. And then add in the fact that nobody's going to be on him. Makes it very interesting. Now, if McLaurin has a big game, that increases the chances of the Broncos having to pass the ball more, which increases the chances of Teddy Bridgewater plus two of his pass catchers hitting. What's really interesting here is that Bridgewater plus two of his pass catchers with those you know, secondary pass catchers being Noah Fant and Tim Patrick. Patrick, who doesn't really see a ton of targets, uh, Bridgewater plus two of his pass catchers has gone for, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but I think it's like 70 plus combined DraftKings points. Maybe it's like 65 plus combined DraftKings points in like three games this season already because they have a relatively concentrated distribution of targets. So this is a very interesting spot where Bridgewater plus Sutton plus Judy could end up or, you know, or you could put in Noah Fant in there and in place one of those guys. It could end up posting 65 to 70 points that nobody's on. Terry McLaurin could post 30 points that nobody's on. And you're sitting on about 100 points from these four players at basically zero ownership. Add in the fact that everybody's going to be on this Bucks and Saints game. And Tom Brady, who is phenomenal, Tom Brady played the Saints three times last year. That's a nice little sample size to work with, right? Brady threw for a max of 239 passing yards in those three games. He threw four touchdown passes in three games and five interceptions in those three games. In fact, if you want to get really freaky here and play the Saints defense, the Saints had a three interception. I think it was a three interception. No, a two interception, three sack game and a two-interception, two-sack game against Brady last year. I don't know that I'll be playing the Saints defense myself, but it's super strong leverage in terms of if everybody's betting on this game and points being scored and Godwin blowing up and Kamara blowing up and, and Gronk having a big game and Brady having a big game and Jameis you know, breaking out for a big game. Well, what's the way to gain massive leverage on that? Bet on one of these defenses being the defense that hits and this game environment as a whole going under. You would hurt all the rosters that roster offensive players from this game and get the points from the defense. Um, so in a spot like this where you can kind of get a really nice high upside stack that people just aren't on. Now, again, there's a broad range here. It could be Sunday night and Bridgewater plus two pass catchers plus McLaurin combined for 50 points. And the roster that I have that on is dust. But I'm okay with that because I also recognize that this is going to hit at a higher level than the field will anticipate and would be massively profitable if and when it does hit. So very long discussion there. But this bottom-up build has Bridgewater and Jerry Judy on it. So two roster spots covered. Uh, we talked about the Bucks saints game just a moment ago. On this particular roster, I have Chris Godwin and Marquez Calloway. So Godwin is... We we know about the matchup issue for Mike Evans. Now, Mike Evans in, in MME play or large field play or even small field play, if if you're you know feeling risky, is an interesting play, right? Because we can sit here and say, oh, Evans has been dominated by Lattimore in his career. I mean, like over a pretty large sample size. But there are always, there was the game last year or two years ago, I guess it was two years ago, when Mike Evans put up like 147 yards in this matchup. And it was because there were a few plays when Lattimore wasn't on him and he ended up going for big plays there. Also, 
like uh, uh, no cornerback is unbeatable, especially not Lattimore. Like Lattimore's really good, but he's going to make some mistakes. There are going to be games in the history of this matchup where Mike Evans does beat Lattimore for some big plays, some touchdowns, whatever it might be. So Mike Evans is a way to go if you're wanting to go off the board because everybody kind of knows that this is a tough matchup for Mike Evans, or I think that they do. I think that by the time we hit Saturday night, ownership projections on Evans will be pretty low compared to Chris Godwin. But Gronk is banged up. The Saints have been top six in lowest tight end success rate allowed for four straight seasons, the or, or I guess three straight seasons, and then including this year. The... Bucks are going to have a hard time running against the Saints. And so that kind of funnels, uh, and, and Antonio Brown's out, that funnels a lot of work toward Chris Godwin. So what I did in building this bottom-up build was I said, look, I'm already on Bridgewater and Judy. People aren't on that. I have a couple other pieces that people are not going to be on. And so I wanted to fill out this part of the roster. I had some extra salary to work with. We have 6.4K in salary left over here. And for those of you who are new here, I guess we should have hit this at the top, but we we do the bottom-up build, building a roster with a 44K salary cap. So this roster comes in at 43.6K. You know, I had some salary to work with, and this is where I wanted to go was, look, I'm doing enough differently on this roster that I'll just ride with the field on Chris Godwin. If Chris Godwin only puts up, you know, if he bombs, quote bombs, it's still going to be a 12, 13 point game. So if Chris Godwin bombs, well, a lot of people are getting that bomb and I'm expecting that I'm moving past them with my Teddy Bridgewater, with my Jerry Judy, with some of these other pieces that are going to be lower owned. If Chris Godwin hits, well, now I get to ride that wave up with the field and then maneuver past them with all these other pieces that I have. Uh, Marquez Calloway being one of those pieces, right? Like people will have Chris Godwin. Very few people will say both teams will be passing a bunch. Marquez Callaway has eight and seven targets the last couple of weeks. Jameis will probably have his most pass attempts of the season in this game. So somewhere in the range of seven, eight, nine, even 10 targets for Callaway is not outlandish. 5,400 is a nice price tag for him. And he's a nice spring back on a Chris Godwin roster. So Teddy Bridgewater, Jerry Judy, Marquez Callaway, Chris Godwin. Let's go ahead and stay at wide receiver where I put in Quez Watkins. Quez Watkins is going to be on... Oh, I was about to say Quez Watkins is going to be on both of these bottom-up builds. He ends up not being on this other one because of something I had to do. We'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, Quez Watkins, we've talked about him plenty this week, so I won't go in depth. He's mentioned in the player grid as well. Should only see four or five targets. That's kind of our expectation, but he's been very close to hitting on a lot of these downfield passes. He's eighth in the NFL in average depth of target. Massive speed against a Lions defense that can be beat deep. So a boom-bust play, but it's nice that Quez's booms or Quez's busts so far have generally still been six, seven, eight point games. At a 4K salary, that's not going to kill you. What we haven't seen yet is his boom game, which could easily be something like four catches for 120 yards and a touchdown, which is 25 DraftKings points. He could also go for four catches, 120 yards, and two touchdowns, you know, which is 31 DraftKings points. That's not out of the range of possibilities for one of these downfield guys like Quez Watkins. Think of him as Marquez Valdez-Scantling, but with a little bit more consistency to his scoring when he misses, right? Like MVS can post a couple zeros per year and a couple 20 to 28 point games. Uh, Quez can post a couple five, six point games and then some 20 to 28 point games. So Quez Watkins is the last wide receiver on this roster along with Judy Godwin Callaway. Tight end, we have Dan Arnold. I won't go into that. Um, it's covered in the player grid. Should see five to eight targets, which is basically in line with what most of these 4K tight ends will see. I don't mind that he'll be, he's not going to be super chalky. He's going to be a little bit popular. I don't mind it because I'm doing everything else different from the field. So Dan Arnold and Mike Gusecki are really the only tight end I'm super interested in this week. And Gusecki costs enough more that he's definitely not on the bottom up build and he might not make it onto my roster. So it might just be, I might only be building two rosters this week and just slot Dan Arnold in on both of those. That brings us to running back where I had to battle to convince myself to settle down with this play. And that's Michael Carter as one of the running backs. But it looks like Tevin Coleman's going to miss. And last week, 
Michael Carter played about 70% of the snaps. Mike White was the check down king. I think it was nine targets to Michael Carter, six targets to Ty Johnson. And the Bengals are giving up, I think it was the second most running back targets and catches in the NFL. Uh, that's off the top of my head, but it's, it's second or top three, somewhere in that range. So it's a good spot for Michael Carter to see a lot of the field and see another five, six, seven, eight, nine targets. Five is probably the four to five is the low end of his range, which is pretty nice, right? He's been seeing three targets per game, basically every game, even when all the running backs have been healthy, even before he started taking on a larger role, even before Mike White stepped in under center. So bump him up to four or five targets if he's seeing more time on the field and has a quarterback who has preferred to check down in the small sample size that we have of him against a defense that sort of forces targets to running backs. Uh, And then he could clearly get up to seven, eight, nine targets. Now, these are not DeAndre Swift seven, eight, nine targets. That's important to keep in mind. DeAndre Swift can put up 90 yards on seven targets. Michael Carter can probably put up 40 yards on seven targets, but seven targets in PPR scoring is pretty valuable. Six targets in PPR scoring is pretty valuable for a guy who costs only 4,900. Touchdown upside is pretty thin. Rushing upside is pretty thin, but Carter should be able to get to, you know, 14, 15 points, even if he disappoints in most scenarios and can get up to 22, 24, 25 points. So for what he unlocks elsewhere on a roster on a week where a lot of the more expensive running backs probably get to 17, 20, 22, 25 points. Like we're not going to see a lot of 30 point scores at running back this week, more than likely. Uh, Carter has a lot of value this week. I mentioned earlier in the week that he was on my list after I'd done my initial pass through the slate and kind of worked through my early thoughts and written down my list. And then on my inner circle segment on Tuesday, I walked through my bubble, my bubble building process and kind of give an example of that and, and guide listeners on like how to handle something like that. And when I got to Michael Carter's name, I skipped over him. Like I couldn't bring myself to say him (laughs) on inner circle. And then as the week has moved along and I've kept thinking about it and kept researching it, it's like, well, it's actually decently sharp, especially at his price tag. So I don't know for sure if I'll end up with him or not. I also like Khalil Herbert. What's interesting about both of these bottom up builds is I have 6,400 left over. So I can't, I need at least 6,000 left over to be under the uh, 44K salary cap. Uh, I have 6,400 left over. And if I went up to Khalil Herbert, I would have 5,900 left over. So I would be just over the salary cap. So if I would have had the extra salary, 100 extra in salary, uh, I probably would wuss out and be taking Khalil Herbert on these rosters. But this gives us a chance to talk about Michael Carter a little bit. Michael Carter is on this build. And then that wraps us up with the reason why I don't have that extra 100 in salary, because I wanted to do a Jonathan Taylor Colts defense pairing. Again, I talk about this in the player grid. I talked about it in the NFL edge DFS interpretation for this game, but Jonathan Taylor, and I talked about it in inner circle on Tuesday night, uh, Colts defense is opportunistic. They attack the ball. They force turnovers. They can get sacks. They're playing at home. The Colts are actually the favored team in this one. And people are likelier to be on the offenses from this game than the defenses from this game. So Colts defense is nice leverage, right? Like if Colts defense hits, then the Derrick Henry rosters are disappointing. And I expected the Colts passing attack to be more popular than it looks like it will be. But also if Colts defense hits, it's probably hurting the game flow for the Colts passing attack. And so you get that Jonathan Taylor plus Colts defense pairing that very few people will have and that works nicely together, tells a really good story and has plenty of upside. And in addition to being lower owned, the Colts defense also provides some leverage off of some higher owned pieces. So if I had had, uh, if I'd gone down to DeAndre Swift on this roster, I would have had 100 extra in salary, could have gone from Michael Carter up to Khalil Herbert. But I actually started this roster with Jonathan Taylor and the Colts defense, and then Bridgewater and Judy, and sort of moved forward from there. So that gives us Bridgewater quarterback paired with Jerry Judy, Michael Carter and Jonathan Taylor at running back, Jonathan Taylor paired with the Colts defense, Marquez Calloway and Chris Godwin opposite one another in that Saints-Bucks game, Quez Watkins 
and Dan Arnold. The other bottom-up build just kind of tweaks this one a little bit. So we still have Jonathan Taylor at running back. We still have Michael Carter at running back. We still have Dan Arnold at tight end. And we still have Jerry Judy at wide receiver. We move from the Colts defense up to the Bears defense because I want to tell a different story with this roster. I really like this Colts-Titans game, and I want to be kind of focused on this game on my potentially only two builds this week. Uh, and part of the reason why I'm, you know, I came into the week saying maybe I'll build nine rosters and do what I've been doing, right? Like three rosters in the, the $400 juke, which is like a 300 entry tournament, a different three rosters in the $150 power sweep, another three max with about a thousand entries and another three rosters, different three rosters in the larger power sweep. Again, $150 entry fee, three max, and about 4,000 to 5,000 entries. So basically kind of tailoring three rosters to this small field juke, three rosters to this 1K entry power sweep, three rosters to this 5K entry power sweep. But as I've gone through the week, I keep just kind of focusing on these more concentrated spots. This Colts-Titans game, this Bridgewater stack and realizing, well, maybe I don't need a branch beyond this. So maybe this week it's like a one, a one roster in the game changer, which is the $1,500 entry, and then throw both of these into the juke for, you know, another 800 bucks. Um, we'll see what I end up doing this week, but I want to focus on this Titans Colts game because it's uh, the highest game total on the slate and very close spread. It's kind of moved from the uh, Colts opened as favorites. I think they opened as 2.5 point favorites. When the Angles email came out, by the time the Angles email came out, it had already swung over to Titans being favored and then back down to Colts being favored by one. By the time I was looking at things last night, the Colts were favored by two and a half again. This morning, the Colts are favored by two. So this line kind of keeps moving around, but it's staying in this general range of basically Vegas saying, hey, this is going to be a closely contested game right down to the wire. Well, a closely contested game with two teams that can score points, uh, Colts have had a really bad pass defense this year and number one DVOA against the run. You guys know how much I love Darius Leonard, how great he is at stopping opposing running backs. Derrick Henry has only one strong game in his career against Darius Leonard-led Colts defense, and that was last year when like half the Colts defense was out due to COVID. So if the Colts are able to slow down Derrick Henry, and if the Titans react quickly enough and start passing the ball, well, A.J. Brown probably becomes one of the drivers of this game. If A.J. Brown has a big game, right, if if Downing and this Titans coaching staff are adaptable enough to say, look, we're not getting it done with Derrick Henry, and Jonathan Taylor's maybe gashed us for a couple of big runs, maybe the Colts took, took an early 7-0 lead, let's start passing. Let's start involving A.J. Brown. Well, A.J. Brown, you could even go to Julio Jones if you're not scared about the health, and nobody's going to roster Julio Jones, but A.J. Brown going to see his typical 7, 8, 9 targets, but it's worth noting that he didn't top nine targets. I think it was, I think he topped nine targets in one game last year and it was like week 17 or something like that. So his huge year last year was on this seven to nine target volume. So I'm not concerned about the volume. And if AJ Brown starts hitting for some of these bigger plays, well, then this becomes this back and forth game. Teams that have players who can score from anywhere on the field are always worth considering, especially when the two teams are somewhat evenly matched. Because when both teams, if, if one team starts scoring long touchdowns, that forces the other team into extra aggression, into added aggression. So the interesting build here, again, we've left Carter, we've left Ta Jonathan Taylor, we've left Dan Arnold, we've left Jerry Judy. We don't want the Colts defense because we want to bet on this game in a different way. Move up to the Bears. And we add in Carson Wentz and Michael Pittman and AJ Brown. AJ Brown is the where we moved off of Chris Godwin in this one. So this gives us a really interesting sort of super stack from this game of Wentz and Taylor and Pittman. This will not be the first time this year that I played this stack. I played this stack, I think it was two weeks ago, and it totally bombed. But Two times this season, in fact, I think it's two of the last three weeks, this three-player stack would have produced a really nice combined 
score. Basically like 3.75x the combined salary one week. And then uh, I think it's about almost four and a half X their combined salary the next time. So it's basically saying, yes, the Colts spread the ball around, but the main places the ball is going, the main places touchdowns are likely to go. Now, even if T.Y. Hilton's back this week, I'm not super concerned about that. I've seen stuff like T.Y. Hilton led the Colts in targets his last game. Well, yeah, Carson Wentz threw the ball, what was it, like 20 times in that game, right? So let's throw that out. Let's not pretend like that is instructive for us this week. It's basically from reading Colts beat writers, understanding how they see the team from the inside. This is a team that wants to utilize all their wide receivers. And depending on matchup, depending on game, depends on which wide receiver is going to see the most targets. One of the reasons why I was high on Paris Campbell, because he was the guy that nobody was thinking about from this offense. Turns out that uh, his Achilles was still kind of sapping his explosiveness. And then by the time he started getting back up and running, he got hurt again. But this is just as likely to be a Michael Pittman 10-11 target game as it is to be, or it's more likely to be, in my opinion, uh, a Michael Pittman 10-11 12 target game than it is to be a T.Y. Hilton, you know, eight or nine target game. So touchdowns are likely to flow through these guys. Upside is likely to flow through these guys. Carson Wentz plus Jonathan Taylor plus Michael Pittman. You take on extra risk, but if you're right, you're right in three spots. The main way that you are likeliest to be right is for A.J. Brown to also be having a, a big game. So you kind of tie this story together by putting all four of these players onto a roster together. In order to make all of this fit, I had to pivot from Quez Watkins down to Nico Collins. It's actually a really interesting play, especially if Tyrod Taylor is back this week. I have seen Brandon Cook's popping in ownership projections everywhere I look this week. Not as like the highest owned wide receiver, but anywhere from like the third highest owned to the seventh or eighth highest owned wide receiver. Makes sense. Everybody thinks about correlation now. Well, you've got to correlate. And what we've talked about is correlation is so important because scoring in the NFL is correlated, but blindly correlating is worse than not correlating at all. And so there's this thought of like, oh, well, I like the Rams. The Rams are going to score a lot of points. And now I need a piece from the Texans. Who's the only piece you're going to think about? Well, Brandon Cooks, bring him back. Well, every other matchup, everyone's like, oh, you can't play a wide receiver against Jalen Ramsey. Don't play a wide receiver. Don't play a number one wide receiver because Jalen Ramsey can erase him. But then you get to this spot and Brandon Cooks is the only guy that anybody feels comfortable with. And so it's like, yeah, well, we'll play Brandon Cooks. Uh, so it's a really interesting spot with Nico Collins. I'm not high on Nico Collins. I don't, ex I can't describe for you the way he has a huge game, the way that I can describe for you the way that Quez Watkins has a huge game. But what I can tell you is that Tyrod Taylor, if he's back, can keep this game much more competitive than it would be with Davis Mills under center. And that if Jalen Ramsey is on Brandon Cooks, that should filter some extra targets to Nico Collins, who should be on the field basically the entire game. So, you know, he's been in, I think it's like a, a four targets and six targets is what he's, what he's seen his last two games. Uh, and something more like seven to eight targets wouldn't be super surprising in this spot. So Nico Collins, not a guy I'm going out of my way to play, but if he's the final piece on a roster and it allows me to do what I need to do in other spots, then he's worth thinking about. To make things clear, right? Like I'm not just auto playing expensive players this week and then saying, cool, Nico Collins is here to unlock things. But on this roster where we had a 44K salary cap, Everything that I was trying to do, right? Carson Wentz plus Jonathan Taylor plus Jerry Judy, uh, sorry, plus um, A.J. Brown plus Michael Pittman plus, you know, we've already got Dan Arnold and the Bears saving a salary that's about as cheap as we can go at those positions. Jerry Judy's about as cheap as we can go on a wide receiver who can really truly get us 30 points. And Michael Carter's as cheap as we can go at running back without kind of just getting into digging in the dirt and hoping that we find some gold. And so... Nico Collins was necessary on this roster in order to unlock everything else that I was trying to do. And he's relatively sharp 
from a standpoint of, hey, this guy's only 3,200. So if I were building with a 50K salary cap and I had a similar type of build that I was trying to put together, whether it was, you know, maybe it's a Josh Allen and Stefan Diggs stack and you want to bring, or, or, or maybe you want to do Calvin Ridley plus DJ Moore, something that Hilo talked about in his write-up for that game. And that's an interesting stack that people won't be on. And then you also want to fit in Diggs and then you also want to go Godwin, right? And then you want to go with Swift plus Jonathan Taylor or something like that, right? And you need something that unlocks some of that on a build that makes a lot of sense and is super sharp. Nico Collins is there to unlock it. So this second bottom-up build roster, Carson Wentz at quarterback, paired with Jonathan Taylor and Michael Pittman from his offense and A.J. Brown from the opposing offense, Michael Carter as the other running back, Nico Collins and Jerry Judy as the guys who kind of unlock things at wide receiver, Dan Arnold and the Bears as guys who unlock things at tight end and defense. With that, we are going to call it a wrap. I am going to get this Angles podcast sent off and then head into Boston to go to the Children's Museum with my wife and son and daughter and parents uh, for a little bit of downtime before I turn my attention to roster construction tonight. As always, thank you so much for hanging out this week. Be sure to check out the missions tab on the homepage menu. If you are not in Inner Circle, make sure you listen to Zandamir and Hilo's Saturday Strategy Podcast. Even if you don't pay the 39 bucks to get Inner Circle for the rest of the season, that podcast alone is worth 39 bucks on one weekend. So getting it for free is incredible value. Uh, check out the Oracle in the scroll this week. And I will see you on the site throughout the weekend. And I will see you at the top of the leaderboards when it's all said and done.